thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're going to close our study of the book of Exodus by a review. And because we are at the doorway of Lent, I thought that it would make sense for us to consider the moral sense of Scripture tonight. You know, Scripture has typically four senses. And you find those in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, beginning with paragraph 101 through 115. And those are the literal sense, which is the sense intended by the author when the book was written. And that's mainly the sense we follow in this Bible study for obvious reasons. We are several hundreds and thousands of years away from that culture. Much of what is written in Scripture um, seems strange to our ears. We're not used to their customs, to the problems that we're facing. And it's very hard for us to understand the intent unless we reconstruct the environment. And we spend quite a bit of time doing just that. That's called the literal sense. Not the literalist sense, as some would, um, would have you believe. By this I mean taking Scripture word for word, most uh, present in the book of Genesis. God created the world in six days, therefore it was six times 24 hours. That's the literalist sense. We don't necessarily always follow that sense. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. The literal sense is really what was intended when, when something was said. And you know that. You, you are able to distinguish between the two. And I've given you these examples many, many times. If I were to say, give me a break, you're not going to get out, go to a store, buy me a break, and bring it back. You know that the literalist sense is not what is intended. Something else is. Then there is the anagogical sense, the sense through which we find Christ, who is the light of Scripture in Scripture. And we do quite a bit of that as well. There is the analogical sense, the sense with which we find the church in Scripture. And we've touched upon that. And the fourth sense is the tropological or moral sense, which is the one that speaks to the heart of the faithful as you read Scripture. It is the one by which the Holy Spirit has something to say to you personally as you read Scripture. Clearly, a sense most people are familiar with. However, in most cases, we do not realize that that fourth sense built upon the literal one and upon the teachings of the church. So we have to have these two with us before we can properly interpret 
Scripture in a moral sense. But tonight, I think it might make sense, it will make sense, for us to precisely consider this sense. To look at the book of Exodus, one more time, in light of Lent. And to see how the Exodus we saw is really an image or a mirror of our own lives. That our lives are meant to be this ongoing exodus. And in that sense, the book of Exodus remains always a living book. A book we can return to time and time again, especially around the time of Lent, to read about our own growth, to read about how God walks with us personally. And that's what we're going to do tonight. There are essentially... Two main parts, main themes of the study. One is how God approaches us. It is God's approach to us that we want to understand. And two is our response to God. God is always the initiator. God is always the one who comes to you. You did not choose to come to this Bible study. God chose you to come to this Bible study. You're thinking you're running after God. You're not realizing He's running after you way more than you are. You're thinking you're searching for God. He's been looking out for you since you were born, and He's searching for you. God plays a far more active role in your life than your beating heart. And we have to come to realize this, because this is truly the love of the Father. Always active, always present, always manifest through the glory of the Holy Spirit in everything we do, in all our actions. The two responses, the two parts. The first part, the first part, God's coming to us. There are three cycles. And these three cycles, by the way, aren't specific to the book of Exodus. They are cycles we see time and time again throughout Scripture. We saw them in Genesis. We see them in Exodus. We see them, in, we see them as well in the book of Revelation. The three cycles are, one, the cycle of the fall. Even in the way we fall, God doesn't abandon us. God doesn't pull back. The second is the cycle of purification. How God is the one who initiates the approach. How He moves us away from the fall. Brings us back to Him. And the third is the cycle of worship. And if you reflect on your lives, you will see that there is this cycle to it. There's something cyclical about our life in the sense that we seem to be in a revolving door. I don't mean a cycle as in reincarnation or a cycle as repeating the exact same moment in history. I mean being in a revolving door. Some days you might be convinced that you are a saint because the day went wonderfully well. You were able to pray. You're filled with grace. You have a sense you're floating on a cloud. And the following day, you're, wa- you're wallowing in the pits of misery. That revolving door is part of this catechesis that God uses to teach us about ourselves. It is important for us to realize this. Particularly when it comes to Lent. Particularly when it comes to Lent. 
And then there's our response. Our response is in two parts. And it is a response, again, given us by God. Jesus himself was very, very clear. St. John the Baptist was very, very clear. What were the first two words in Jesus' mouth when he started his ministry? The two words. Repent and be converted. Repent and be converted. Repentance is about the recognition of our vices. The recognition of our fallen state. Conversion is the movement, the, move, the moving away, the movement away from vice to virtue. You have to repent first, which is necessary, but not sufficient. You have to be converted. And so every year, we go through the same cycle. We're each Lent. What is Lent a season for? Repentance. And what is Easter a season for? Deeper conversion. But many of us are stuck in a revolving door where year after year, our growth spiritually stunted. We come to Lent and we're exactly where we were the year before. Not even a bit of progress has been made. Not even a bit of progress has been made. And we repeat it over and over again. In the parable that Christ gave about the church, the parable of the sower, there were four categories of people. Four categories. There are those who fell by the wayside. There are those who fell on rocks. Both of them are outcast. They're gone. The third and fourth category are the ones that concerns us most. The third category is those who fell in good grounds, grew up, but then thorns surrounded them and stunted their growth. And what is the thorns? When Jesus explains this to the disciples, the cares of the world. The cares of the world stunted their growth. And then the fourth category are the one who were also rooted in the same ground as the third, no different, the same exact ground, but in their case, love propels them onward and they produce fruits. So notice, only a quarter, only 25% produce fruits. That would be a reminder to all of us. Only 25% produce fruits. I don't think Jesus meant it statically. I don't think he meant it for us to believe that when you fall in one place, that's what to be careful with the parable, you're going to stay there. You might be stunted, then you might produce fruit, you might be stunted again, you might, you might then drop completely out. Yeah? The revolving cycle. Hmm? So that's our response. So God comes to us in three cycles. The fall, purification, and then worship. And we must move, must correspond to His action by moving away from repent, by, by repenting, recognizing our, 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 we are sinners, and moving to conversion, being converted. So I'm going to review the book of Exodus through this lens. Let's start with the first one, the cycle of the fall. And let's observe what happens. By the way, you hear me use the word fall, and I'm using it specifically because there is these echoes between the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. Almost every book in Scripture refers back to Genesis. Everything we do is really referring back to Genesis. Right? Even the Gospel of St. John 
in the beginning was the Word. And then he structures his first chapter as seven days. Let's observe what happens in this case, because it is very, very um, illustrative of our own situation. The garden was a special case. Adam and Eve were created immaculate. They were immaculately conceived. I mean, created, not conceived, right? Immaculately created, and they fell. It's harder for us to relate to them. We don't know anybody here around us who's immaculately conceived. But we can relate with the people of Israel being in the promised land, going through a drought. Now that's something we can all relate to. Because it speaks to fundamentals in us. Food. And God sends them a savior, Joseph, who brings them down to Egypt. A land where, through the wisdom of God, he had set aside food enough for all to live. And they come, and they stay. Now, who made that possible? Who made all that possible for them? God. We need to keep that in mind, because otherwise we fall into a naive consideration of what sin is. Sin isn't, isn't just, or the temptation to sin doesn't simply come from bad things. As a matter of fact, it never comes from bad things. How many of you are tempted to go and spend your weekend inside a nice, comfy garbage can? Raise your hand. How many of you are tempted by that? No one of us are tempted by this. God gave them a good, didn't He? The good was to go down to Egypt and live. But what did God tell Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? What was the repeated message? This is the land I will give you and your descendants. This is where you're supposed to live. There's a drought. They go down to Egypt. How long was the drought supposed to last? Seven years. God even told them. Seven years. Had they been faithful to God, what would have they done after seven years? Go back. Why did they fall? Watch Adam and Eve in the garden. Here is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is a good tree. God does not create garbage. This is a good tree. It is in the garden. God said, do not touch it. People of Israel, I am giving you this as your promised land. You go down to Egypt because I'm caring for you. I'm giving you food. The drought has ended. What are you supposed to do? Go back. In both cases, what was the underlying Sin committed. Disobedience. Yeah? Disobedience. Catholics. The church says, contraception is a mortal sin. 75% of Catholics contracept. Catholics. You can't use artificial insemination. Abortion is a moral wrong. Once married, you can't divorce. 
The moral law is given for our good. And what do we do? Yeah. But let's take it one step further. We're not doing any of this. We're not doing any of this. We are following the dictates of the church. But when we go home on Sunday, after Mass, we never discuss the homily with our children. Men don't grab a rosary and call their children and their wife to prayer. They don't take their family on Sunday to sit in the Blessed Sacrament and teach them to be in the presence of God. They go to a restaurant and they are embarrassed to say a Catholic prayer before they eat. Or if they do, they look left and right and make sure no one is looking at them. No different. I am not saying this to try to embarrass you or cause you pain. I want to indicate how Exodus applies to us. We are all in the same boat. Before we can become Christians, we must become Israelites. I do not mean by that that we have to go to the temple and worship like the Jews did in any of this. I mean on a journey. We have to recognize that more often than not, we act like people without grace. And if we do not recognize this, there is no basis for our repentance. They go to Egypt. What is Egypt? Can you give me a modern word for Egypt? It's a three-letter word. Pardon? Rock and roll. Yeah. No, not necessarily. I mean, yes, but I don't want to go to the extreme. United States of America? They immigrated to a country where you have a structure. You have a government. You have an army. You have peace. They were immigrants. They came to this country and they settled down. Once they settled down, what did they do? They adopted Egyptians' ways. Now let's see. Catholics come to the United States, which is a good thing. What do their children do? They adopt the culture. Indiscriminately. The good with the bad. More the bad than the good. When you go back home tonight, if you have a television enthroned in your living room, the living room where you're supposed to receive people, if you have a television enthroned in your living room, go to the mirror, look yourself in the mirror and say this, I am an Egyptian. And if you are thinking about different ways in which you can reply back to me why it's a good thing to have this TV, then you found all the ways that the Israelites used to say that it was good for them to stay in Egypt. Do not be dishonest. If you allow yourself these excuses, then please allow them the excuses and see where this is going to take you. Do you understand? There is something radical about the faith. If you're not willing to be radical, then in a fundamental sense, you're not really serious about it. They go down to Egypt, they settle down, they're comfortable. What does God do? 
not forget. God never forgets. Before he sends Moses, there is a little bit of time that goes by, right? How, how many? How many years go by? 400 years. 400 years go by. 400 years. During which, what happens? The Israelites live in Egypt. Like before they were enslaved, even before they were enslaved, like the Egyptians. So where where are they going? After they die, I mean. Think about that. What is that then? That silence of God, what is that? Pardon? His wrath. To the Egyptians, to the Israelites, they were leading a very good life. Materially, they had everything they needed. Goshen was fertile. They had comfort. They had a good life. But God was silent. And the silence of God is His wrath. So if you in your life are leading a very comfy life where you do not need to grow in faith, where you do not have a hunger of God in your heart, where you're not having a sense that you're failing spiritually. You're comfortable. You're good. I'm good. I'm where I need to be. What is that? What should you be um, doing? You should be really, really afraid. That's what you should be. Because as St. Paul tells us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And St. Paul didn't say, only for the first part of your life, and then you can stop. He never put a time limit to this. So man search and yearns for material good. God, who knows our weaknesses, gives us what we want. But oh, be always careful when you get what you want. Most of us don't know our hearts. And we get what we want, and it's not what we need. I'm not going to tell you how often in these 15 years of teaching Scripture, I've had mostly women come to me after Bible study to tell me that when they were younger, they had married this man who did not believe. And now, years later, the dissensions, the fights, the difficulties and the sufferings they're going through over the kids. They had what they wanted. It wasn't what they needed. Man is entangled with material needs. You want to show, oh, and show you? It's very easy. Very easy. Let me show you. Because most of us, we think, oh, no, I'm not. You know, I'm good. I'm, I'm not entangled with material needs. I don't need this, you know, iPad version 2. Coming in March, by the way. No, I'm, I don't need that. Right? No, no, I'm fine. I don't need the latest, greatest phone. I'm not going to talk to you about any of those things because those are really the fringe stuff we can do without. Let's talk about Lent because that's where you're going to see it. Tell me how you fast. I'll tell you how attached you are. So, these days, fasting, something is like this. Okay, I'll give up chocolate and maybe coffee. Well, maybe not a whole week, but at least part of the week. All right, let me not make that up. 
Give me examples of fasting programs you have heard. I'm not saying these are yours. I'm just saying things you've heard people do. Just tell me what people do. Don't be shy. Come on. I know you know. Pardon? Okay. Bread and water. Pardon? Stop smoking. Okay. No dessert. No meat. No dairy. No carbs. That gets specialized and interesting, right? Okay. No sweets, no shopping, no food, no water for 24 hours. Okay. So, here's a program that I'm going to set before you, and you've heard me say it multiple times. Those of you who already have something like it or better, go for it. Um, I like black and white. I like black and white because I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to give myself, I know myself, and if there is even a little bit of leeway... I'll be in full negotiation mode. And I'm good at it. So I don't want that. I want it really clear. Like for instance, people say, no dessert. I tried that. Okay, riddle me this. What's a muffin? Was it a dessert or was it a breakfast? Ah, right? That could be a snack. Exactly. Now, what if you're taking an extended breakfast? I'm really good at that. I'll find loopholes. I become an instant lawyer when it comes to fasting. So I can't allow myself any wiggle room. So it has to be black and white. Simple. Okay, here goes. This is modeled on Eastern uh, fasting. So I didn't make that up, by the way, because I don't trust myself to make something good. I'm just going to rely on what people use for a long, long time. No food no water, and no drinks from midnight to noon, every day, Monday through Saturday. No food, no water, no drinks, no nothing. Nothing gets into your mouth except air between midnight and noon. Isn't that easy? No wiggle room. Can you brush your teeth? Uh, Yes, you can brush the food, right? You're not going to eat toothpaste. So you're good with that. The problem though, and I know, because I, yeah, exactly. Because if I brush my teeth, I need water. Aha, I'm in trouble. So you didn't brush your teeth? Tough luck. Live with it. No food, right? Ah, let's get to that. Now this is just temporal. We took care of the temporal. Oh, by the way, no chewing gum. Try that. Okay. Nothing. Nothing to chew, nothing to... Nothing, right? Easy, isn't it? Okay. Next. No meat. For the whole Lent. Except Sundays, obviously. Sundays are always excluded, right? And uh, holy... I mean, um, uh, feast days. No meat. No dessert. No coffee. No caffeinated drinks. Of any kind. And I'll leave it at that. I tried the no white... For those of us who work in different places, it gets very complicated. And it gets so complicated that it's just impossible to manage. But if you can, go for it. No white. All right? Uh, it's a anything white. So white bread, milk, egg, cheese, uh, anything that to represent the, anything that has a color white related to the resurrection. None of that. No su- Oh, yeah, no sweets. Oh, yeah. You bet. All right. Now, how many of you 
I, I just want to show of hand. How many of you find this difficult? Good. Very good. Now, there are some who will not find that difficult. Praise be to God. You are our model. You are our example. You're the ones we want to imitate. For those of us who find this difficult, let me explain to you why we find this difficult, which is going to bring us back to the second part of the book of Exodus. Because Jesus said, that, and here's why we find it difficult. As soon, immediately, as soon as we start talking like this, the devil is right here standing next to us. Right next to us. Well, okay, that's great. If you don't eat from noon to, from midnight to noon, you're messing up your diet. You're going to gain weight. Go for it. Besides, you're getting on with years. You may become diabetic. And it's, it's too hard. And why do you want to do this? You can't do that. Who do you think you are, a saint? It's too difficult. He's right there whispering all of this. Why does his words have, why does his words have a, um, a um, foot, um, foothold in our soul? Why? Because we're weak? Because, I'm sorry, easy? We, we want to suffer, Yes. But at the fun, in the fundamental sense, because we think we can do it. See? Somehow we think we can attempt this and be successful at it. The fundamental problem is we are ignoring the words of Christ. Apart from me, you can do nothing, let alone fast. Okay, so I cannot do it apart from Christ. Yeah? I cannot do it apart. I cannot do it without Him. So therefore, what does that mean? I can't depend on my strength to make this whole thing work. I'm dependent on whose strength? On Jesus's. He will make this happen. Now, if God is with us, who can be against? St. Paul, right? So this is what I do on every beginning of every Lent. I do not presume that God is going to give me the grace to do what I just described to you. I am not saying I'm going to do it because of my own strength. Because I have none. I'm a sinner. I don't have that presumption. I have the desire. Okay, so, come Monday, Ash Monday for the Easterns, and Ash Wednesday for the Latin Rite, come Monday of next week, I'm going to do my thing at midnight and stop. And by 10 o'clock, by 10 o'clock the following day, I'll know. Because Jesus knows I have to work. I have responsibilities. So therefore, I can't be, I can't have the shakes. I can't have such a headache that I can't function. If I'm going through this, then I am failing at my responsibility towards my family and my work. That's not what God wants, clearly. So he knows that. So if by 10, I'm fine, I'm functioning, that's God's indication, I want you to do this fast. But if it isn't, and I'm falling all apart, and I've asked him, help me, and he's not, then I understand, okay, I have, he wants me to do something else. What is it, Lord? Do you understand? That's the conversation you're entering with God. This is walking in trust with God. Not me, Mr. Hero, I'm going to do this, I described to you. That's when I fall flat on my face 
it's never going to work. And thank God it doesn't work because it's building me up in presumption, in pride. It's doing the exact opposite that fasting is supposed to do. You understand? So please, lay aside. Once you start thinking this way, the devil can blabber and blabber and blabber and blabber. And it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I can and cannot do. It doesn't matter how strong or weak I am. None of that matters. What matters is what Jesus wants. That's the only thing that matters. And if he wants me to do that, you bet I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it with joy. And I'm going to be available to others, and Lent will bear fruit in my soul. Yeah? So be not afraid. And don't be anxious about whether you can shoulder this weight or not. But do show God that you love Him generously. Do not be trying the small things that you think you can do and not daring to do the things that you think are impossible to do because then you're relying on your own strength. That's precisely what the Israelites did. That's the other problem. Not only did they go down to Egypt, not only did they sat and lived a comfortable life, but they forgot about the Lord. It was all about themselves. And since it was all about themselves, God left them to themselves. Until when? Until He sent them a... a um, he sent them a gift in disguise. Pharaoh. Right? So now we move into the third step. God comes to man's aid. He comes to our aid, but not the way we think. Because our thinking is, make me win the lotto. Give me more stuff. Let me hoard more things. Let me, gra- let me grab more stuff, right? Yes. Ah, Can we live in both comfort zones? On the earth and in... And in God? What do you think? Do you think yes? Okay. What do you think Jesus thinks? Why? What do you say no? No man can serve two masters. You're here, so you don't stay here. We shouldn't have pain. Hmm. We shouldn't have pain. What do you think of that? Okay, that's a good answer. It's an imitation of. It's a good answer. But can we get something a little bit more fundamental? What do you think? There's no need for God if you don't have pain. That's another good answer. We need God to help us in our sufferings. Okay. That's valid. But it doesn't address the fundamental question. Why pain? Why pain? Right? Right. Carry my cross. But why? Why all of this? Why? Why is it the only way? So, for instance, can you name me, can you name me a saint who was a millionaire when he died? Do you know of one? You mean having the necessities of life? The pain is to share what Jesus has paid on the cross. Absolutely, yes. But I just want to address this issue of comfort. Yes. Here's the fundamental answer to, the, to, to all our questions. And, you know, okay, let me put it to you this way. When, try and remember the day you saw your wife for the first time. What did this do to you? What did it create in your heart? It revealed to you that there is something you don't have, isn't it? That you want. But before you were married... She was not your wife yet. During that time, there was something that you wanted that you didn't have, right? You're you're with me? Okay. Suppose that during this time, you found a bucket of ice cream. 
And every time you ate of this ice cream, you forgot about your, your wife. The bucket of ice cream made you very comfortable. Would that have been a good thing for you? That's exactly what it is. The problem is, even the comfort of life, as good as it is, becomes an obstacle to our love for Jesus. So, we stop yearning for Him. If you truly, truly love Jesus, there is no comfort on this earth, because you don't have Him. If you love someone, and you want to be with Him, and He's not there, there is suffering. Our heart is wounded because Christ is not here. Or to put it the way St. Augustine put it, Lord, our heart is restless until it rests in you. So the fundamental problem isn't a question of why should we be poor or why should we be destitute. It has nothing to do with any of this. It has something to do with the fact that in order to be with God, God must be our beloved. We must be in love with God. More so than we were in love with our wives. Or we are in love with our wives. God has to be. No, it's impossible. Because if you, again, think about it. You want your wife and she's not there. You're happy? No, 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 no. That's not material. Fundamentally, the human heart yearns to be united to God. The human heart ends up being very comfortable down here and substitutes material comfort to the love of God. Now, let me answer your question differently. God, in His charity, fills our heart with peace when we are yearning for Him. But often also, He will take the peace away so that we may grow in love of Him. Because we grow in love when we do not have God present to us. Otherwise, we're comfortable. What makes us grow is the lack of the thing we're after. Most of us are structured this way. We run after that which we do not have. So God hides His face from us. So He gives us the ability to grow in our love for Him. Hence, more often than not, we will not be comfortable. That's why. And you see it in the lives of the saints. You see it in the writings. St. John of the Cross, speaking of the dark night of the soul. Mother Teresa, having undergone this. Most saints will go through it. Most of us will go through it. Because at the end of the day, God is not present. We don't have the beatific vision. That's what we're yearning for. Yeah? But you have love of that which you possess. If you do not possess that which you love, how can you be happy? You love a girl and she doesn't want to marry you. Are you happy? No, 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 no. Answer my question. You love a girl, she doesn't want to marry you. Are you happy? Love wounds your heart. She's not with you. The object of your love is not yours. He's, the beatific vision is not with you, is it? Do you see God face to face? You're made to see God face to face. That's your end. You don't define your end. God defined it for you. He wants you to see Him as He truly is. The point is, what the reason why we live is to be united to God and see Him as He is. Because we don't, 
our heart must always be yearning for Him. And to the degree that we love Him, the greater our yearning for Him. So for instance, what is the name of that saint, this girl, little girl, right? Who uh, died the day she received communion? Died of joy? Her first communion. Is it Saint Imelda? Yeah, Saint Imelda. Saint Imelda. She wanted so much to be united to Jesus. When she received the host, she literally, physically died of joy. Kneeling right there. That's love. Yes. Correct. But that was, you're right, that was in the case of that specific rich man. Because Nicodemus was also a very wealthy man. Yes, but Nicodemus was also a very wealthy man. Yet Jesus didn't say that to Nicodemus. Only to this man. So you can see how in certain cases, richness are an obstacle. In the case of rich men, they were. In the case of Nicodemus, they weren't. He used his wealth, actually, to embalm Jesus and for the, pay for the tomb. And he used it to do corporate works of mercy. So, to your point. If you're using your wealth to show Jesus how you love him, better for you. Absolutely. So, but as I said, most of them have, done, have given their wealth by the time they're dead. They just give everything. They, they have that propensity to give because they realize the more they give, the more they love. And the more they love, the more they're closer to God. So the two kind of go hand to hand, hand in hand. So, back to the point. The reason fundamentally why there is pain in our heart is because the God that we want to be united to is not completely present today. And we will see Him as He is in heaven when we behold beatific vision. Then our joy will be complete, as Scripture says. Right, so until then, you can be comfortable, but you can't be 100% comfortable. Now, how does God come to the aid of man? He comes to the aid of man through man. Through man. Most of us sometimes pray to God for, God, give me guidance. Help me see your... And God answers through others. So we have to be attentive to those whom God send our way. Most of the time it is through others. He sent them Moses, the least likely Savior. He's old, really old. He has a stutter. He was a prince. He had nothing to do. He, he didn't share the social statue. He wasn't one of them, really. And then for 40 years he was really living a comfortable life with sheep up in the mountain and very content He didn't need anything else. So God came and messed up his comfort. And God tends to do that. He tends to do that. Okay, Moses, you're going to go, oh, no, 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 don't send me. You're going to send somebody else. A whole bunch of people better than me. Just send them. Why are you sending me? He's arguing with God. You would think that, oh, if God come to me, I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to be the next St. Paul. Right? No, I'm just going to be exactly like Moses. Hold on, let's negotiate. What do you want me to do? I'm, I'm just happy the way it is right now. Why do you want to mess, up, mess it up? I got a good gig. Go find somebody else. Yeah. I know a couple of guys are really comfortable. You can go talk to them. Why me? Right? Why me? What is that? What, what does that suggest to all of us? If he picked up Moses, he can pick up any one of us. None of us have excuses. Moses was old. He had a stutter. And he picked him. None of us have excuses. 
And so he picks, he picks Moses and then he sends him over to Pharaoh. And then he, what does God do? We move into the, the cycle of purification. The first thing that God does is what? Show forth his glory. Show forth his glory. He tells Moses over and over, I'm going to do this so that Pharaoh will see my glory. So you will see my glory. Right? Constantly. Now, what is the glory of God? In the Trinitarian life, apart from everything created, what's God's glory? God is simple. Right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What is the glory of God? Okay. St. Athanasius essentially says that the glory of God is the Holy Spirit. That's what the glory of God is. The Holy Spirit is the glory of God. So he's showing forth his Holy Spirit. Why does God need to do that? Why does God start by showing forth his glory through the signs? And we know the signs. The plagues of Egypt. Why does he need to do that? Because... Jesus told us, follow me, I will lead you to the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So the glory of God, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, is then what? Truth revealed. It is the revelation of God in the fullness of the truth that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And that's the very first thing we need in order to be repentant. We cannot repent apart from the truth, can we? If you walk with a big lump on your neck and you do not see it, can you, hear, can you heal the lump? Can you do anything about it? No. You need to see. You need your eyes to be opened to see that lump. Therefore, you need somebody to help you see it because you can't see it on your own. The truth sets you free. So, how does the truth come to us? Scripture and the Catechism. Catechism. It doesn't come through lightning and bolt of thunder. Just read the Catechism and the Catechism will convict you and the Catechism will start to teach you and you will be seeing the truth bit by bit and the truth will set you free. And then it will convict you and you will start changing your lives. Very simple, normal, hidden, Catholic process for sanctification. Read the Catechism. So God shows forth His glory. And as a result of this, as a result of this, when the glory of God shines, man is stripped of vanity. What is vanity? Vanity has the same root as vain. And what is vain? It is vain glory. Meaning false glory. Glory that has no basis in reality. Man has vainglory. We have so much of it. We call it trends. Oh, I got my iPod, I got my iPad, I got my iPhone, I got my iDisc, I got my... No, um, I'm, I'm rapping on Apple, good company and everything. But nonetheless, there's this vainglory or glory in the, some piece of equipment that, as if it's going to produce anything good in our souls. On its own, it doesn't. Right? Oh, I got my, you know... V8, uh, you know, four-wheel this and then the other, right? Or this one team of 60 guys who hold the ball has won against this other team of 60 guys that hold the ball, and somehow I'm really happy. 
it has absolutely no impact whatsoever on my end state, whether I end up in heaven or hell, but it makes me really, really vainglory. So much of it pervades our lives. So, God's glory is revealed. It strips man of his vainglory. Now, what do you think man does? How do we take it? Yeah, big time, right? Somebody just pulled the tooth out of you. That's how it feels. None of us like it, do we? None of us like it. To see our real state. So here we have a choice. We can say yes, open our hearts, repent, or we can harden it. We can harden it. And what does that depend on? We saw it in the case of Pharaoh. What does that depend on? It depends on our prior actions. It depends on our prior actions. There are certain things that when we do them, are certain to harden our hearts. They will harden our hearts when God's truth is revealed. Things that go against the image of the Trinity in our souls will harden our hearts. Drugs. Homosexuality. Impurities of any kind. Pornography. All of these things, as we partake of them, harden our hearts. And when the truth is revealed, we reject it. Then there are those who were taken by the pleasures of these, this life, taken by the goods of this life, but did not attempt to deform the image of God, the image of the Trinity. To them, the door is open. And some accept and others don't. Do not. And so some are taken, meaning killed, and others are left. And the ones who are left are the ones who are blessed. Because they have now the chance. They have the occasion, the opportunity to repent. So God strips man of his vanity. Then he strips him of his material goods, material comfort. He takes them out of Goshen into the desert. Yeah? Let's all leave San Diego and then go to the desert. We're going to be very happy. Let's see how long it takes us for, to, for us to be grumpy. I'm sure it's not going to take 40 years. Yeah. That's what he did. And then he strips them of the satisfaction of their appetite. Food. Notice the gradation. And he will do that to us as well. If we're willing to walk the walk. Hence Lent. We do it on our own. Much better. As a show of love. Way better. We strip ourselves of all these things because we understand the economy of salvation. We understand how God comes to us. And we want to love Him more. So we're willing to do it. In their case, they were forced to do it. He took them out into the desert to walk them through Lent. And He does that to us. So understand, when you are feeling good about yourself, when you're feeling satisfied, when you're feeling... um, Successful, that means the success that God has given you is for others. He's willing, he wants to reach others through all of this. When you're feeling distraught, when you're feeling down, when you're feeling beaten, when you're feeling that your spiritual life is going nowhere, then God is ministering to you. He's loving you and he is actually making you grow in holiness. 
for his glory is manifested, or his strength, as he told St. Paul, is manifested in weakness. That's how it works. So that's the cycle of purification. Man is brought into the desert. He's taken out of the pleasure of his senses and brought into the desert. And then once there, what happens? God manifests His glory once more. On the mountain, lightning and thunder filled the mountain with smoke. And God spoke to them face to face. When did God speak to them face to face? After they were stripped of all these things. So you go through Lent, leading up to the resurrection, you're getting closer to God. The voice of God becomes clearer as you go through this wonderful season of Lent. God manifests His glory, and then God gives to man the moral truth, the Ten Commandments. Only then did He give them the Ten Commandments. Here is how you will live. What is the Ten Commandments? It is one of the most amazing grace that God gave them. Here is the law of holiness. I am telling you what you have to do. No longer do you need to grope in the dark to find it. I've given it to you. This is the law of life. Follow it, as he told the rich man. And you will receive eternal life. God revealed a great gift. They thought they were losing everything. And they gained the only thing that mattered. So here's the kicker. Most people think they have to go to Mass because God is going to give them a candy. That's why they have a hard time with Mass. They think Mass is about me going to God so can God give me something. They don't realize that Mass is about us going to God to say thank you. We go to God to, to give Him something. We go to God in an attitude of um, generous response. We're there to worship Him and give Him glory and saying thank you for everything you've given me. I'm here to worship you. I have I'm come here to give you glory. And God, in generosity, gives me the bread of life. I mean, how could... This is incredible. But, as I said, most people think Mass is about me going to Mass so I can get something. The truth is, I go to give. Likewise, most people think that when they fast, Lent is about me giving something to God. We're sitting here with a little, you know, the little accounting and we're figuring out how much we're going to give to God. And we don't realize... We don't realize that Lent is the season of gifts. It is the season where God lavishes upon our souls so many gifts. So many gifts are given in Lent. All right. He's given the moral truth, and then he is taught how to glorify God through the language of heaven, through the liturgy. Not only does God tell man, this is how you must live, God instructs man and how he must love. All of that is revealed to the Israelites once they left Egypt. And so it is with our souls. As we walk into this dark night of the soul, as we progress in our spiritual lives, as we give up things, and as we're willing to love God and suffer for Him, He reveals Himself to us and increase His love in us. That's how it works. This is why this book is so relevant. So, the cycle of worship. And then we go again. The golden calf. He was doing this. They went to the, They completely. It was a complete 
reaction to all of this. They could not take it anymore. It was too much for them. They were so close, so close, like the rich man. They were so close, and they gave it all up for one more party. So close, one more party. We're all in danger of this. We all have our golden calves. All of us. It doesn't need not be something big and gold and, you know, with four legs that you... It doesn't need to be any of this. We all have our golden calves. Do you know what it is? And have you melted it down? Lent is a great occasion for that. Right? And if you... The best way to find out? Ask others. Don't rely on yourself. So wives, turn to your husband and ask him, what do you think I should be giving up? And whatever he tells you, you do. Provided it does not contradict, obviously, the teachings of the church. But if he tells you, you yell too much, then take that to heart, and that's what you're going to be working. This is your golden calf. Husbands, ask your wives, what do you think I should be giving up? And if she says, you talk too much, if she says, you're always angry, work on it. Whatever she says, make that part of your Lent. Children, ask your parents. Parents, ask your children. They are very good observers of you. So, we respond by repentance, which is examination of conscience. What are my vices? What are the areas I need to grow in? What are the areas I need to improve on? And we keep it realistic. We make progress. And then, leading us to conversion. That moment in time where we meet God. That miracle where the will of God and the will of man meet and become one in time. Conversion. In repentance, we have the old man alive. And what does the old man in us want? To, to follow the language of St. Saint Saint, Saint Paul. Our fallen nature tends to sin. Realize that. Our fallen nature has inclination to sin. Left on its own, it will go down to sin. It is rebellious. It just doesn't want to listen. It is destructive. It leads us to death. It is blind. It doesn't see the truth about ourselves. And it is dumb. It can't speak the truth. And it is deaf. It can't hear the truth. But... It yearns for the good. There's a deep yearning in our fallen nature for that which is good. So unlike the Calvinists and the Lutherans, Calvin and Luther who taught that man was intrinsically corrupted. There was no good left in him. The Catholic Church has always taught, not true. We were broken, we were weakened, we tend to sin. We have all these issues. But fundamentally, there's always this yearning to the good in our hearts. Never left us. The new man. Raised nature tend to go to virtue. The new man is obedient. He readily obeys. He is fruitful, not destructive. He brings up fruits in himself and others. He is wise because he see. He praises God. His mouth is not dumb. And he hears the voice of God in others. And most, he yearns to see God. 
He wants God to be his possession. All of this is inscribed in that cycle of Exodus. Where at the end, Moses is in the tent, and the Holy Spirit comes and consecrates the tent and fills it with the glory of God. And the drama of Exodus ends this way. Moses has to get out. He cannot withstand the light of grace. Not even Moses could. Which tells you, on this this earth, there is no way for us to behold the beatific vision. Moses had to get out. So, let, let, let there be joy in your heart when you think of Lent. It should be excitement. It's almost like a Christmas. It's a spiritual Christmas. That's what Lent is. That's what Lent is. It's a season that, yes, it is sorrowful. Yes, it is a season where you mortify yourself, but enjoy. Yeah, it should be joyful. Not, oh, you know, Lent. Please, send me, a, I don't know, send me to prison, send me to hard work. No, not, not Lent. Not Lent as if I'm dragging this 14,000 ton piece of rock tied to my legs. I'm going through Lent. Let me make sure everybody knows I am fasting. It's a season for joy. So ask the Lord to give you the joy of Lent. So you can really have a blessed season. Seven weeks. Wonderful weeks. And, um, well actually, you can even ask God to not... uh, He will take care of that. Usually... um, when I'm, when I'm fasting, most often than not, there's no rumbling. But even if it does happen, your stomach is, is praising the Lord. <laughs> Let it do it. What can you say? All right? So, I'm going to stop here. We'll, we're going to say a word of prayer. And then those of you who need to go on your way, may God uh, bless you. Remember, next Monday, no Bible study. And we'll see you the Monday after in Lent for the book of Numbers. And those of you who would like to stay for questions, please do so. Please stand. Questions. Very good. Uh, so the question is, um, if uh, fasting comes easier to you in terms of food, and you don't really care about food, and you can fast quite easily, um, wouldn't it be better to essentially do either corporate acts of mercy, or work on your virtues, or do things that will help you to grow? And I think the answer is, um, there's a couple of elements in the answer. The first, first one is, that all of us should be working on something. So it's not just about food. The whole purpose of food, right? one of the purposes precisely, so we can put the focus somewhere else. So that is a given. We should be choosing certain things that we know need to be improved. However, here's the problem. And here's the interesting piece. As St. Paul tells us, we're not contending about against our flesh only. We're contending against the principalities and powers of this world. The, 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 the demons. Okay? So... What ends up happening is oftentimes you will maybe trying to work on a, on a part of, uh, on a vice that you have, let's say. And the reason why you may be finding it really difficult to overcome it is because it is a particular, um, it, it has, a, a demon has a predilection to really prick you there. Okay? And Jesus told us, so at one point the disciples told Jesus, we're trying to... to uh, to uh, chase this demon, we can do it. Why? And he says, certain demons can only be chased with prayer and fasting. So the fasting isn't just about whether I like the food or not. 
it increases a spiritual presence of God in us, and the, dev- and the demons don't like it. They just leave. All right? So, therefore, I would say to you, fast. Now, on the fish business, very good point. All right, this is plain hypocrisy. All right, oh, we're going to eat fish. And you love fish more than you eat meat. Please. Okay, come be serious, all right? You should only eat fish if, you, if you're like me. To me, fish always tastes like wet cardboard. You can take the fish out of the sea, you can cook it for me right now, and I'll eat it, and I'll tell you, wet cardboard. There's something in my mouth that is missing. There's some function that I just can't understand why people like fish. No, don't talk to me about any you know, seafood or any of that stuff. Okay, I can't even get close to this thing. All right? So I eat fish, and bel- believe you me, it is not a pleasure. But if for you fish is yummy, give up fish. I mean, come on. All right? Now, having said that, what you need to discern is, um, can you fast on bread and water? Now, we've touched a raw nerve, didn't we? Yeah. See what I'm saying? Is God inviting you to intensify your fast instead of just being comfortable? So I would say still, food, fasting from food is essential, no matter what, for, your, for our spiritual growth. Just we have to be understanding and what is God asking us to do with that. Right? Because when you fast, you will see typically, when you're going through a difficult fast, fast is difficult for you, a lot of your emotions calm down, your anger calm down. A lot of, they just calm down. Why? You're chasing away the demons. They can't stand your smell when you're fasting. That's why. Having said that, absolutely focus on... If you can focus on all five, great. Right? Some people may not be able to focus on five things. For them, it may be too much. Even if you picked one, and you're able to follow it through, and by the time you've gone through Lent, through the presence of God in your life, you've improved, that's a victory. Yeah? Okay. Fatty? Yeah. So, sources. Um, most of the sources I have... For the Bible study, so all the material I use, most of it is Jewish. I have literally um, very few Catholic sources on the subject. I couldn't find good Catholic sources on the book of Exodus and Numbers. So when I was up in the monastery um, of um, the Maronite monks of the monastery, I was talking to Father Robert, who just happens to be teaching a course on Exodus. And I had brought my material with me because I was preparing it. So he saw all my books and got really excited and we started talking. And I said, do you, do you have a Catholic book I could just use? Because you know what? It'll make my life a lot easier. There'll be a lot less for me to prepare. And he says, no, I couldn't find any. And he goes, yeah, I got that one, I got this one. No, I didn't have that one. And by the time we're done, he looks at me and says, okay, why don't you just sit down and write a course and then I can use it. And I'm thinking, shouldn't it be the other way around? <laughs> I didn't tell him that, but that's what I thought. So um, the Jewish Publication Society has a pretty good, decent commentary on the book of um, on, 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 on the uh, Old Testament. Um, I use other authors for specific parts. I'll use quotations from the fathers whenever I can find it. 
Um, so that's generally the case. Now, uh, most of what you hear is obviously my commentary, but I don't think that there is anything that I told you that is outside the teachings of the church. So everything you hear is in conformity with what the church teaches. Obviously, when I say things like you know contraception, when I name specific things, I can go back to you can go back to the catechism, and they're all listed there, right? So you can find all those in the catechism. Everything, anything morally, if you're wondering why I'm coming with something that, is, that has a moral tinge to it, go to the catechism. And usually you'll be able to find it there. Is that a, a fair answer? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, there is something called speculative theology. This is what St. Thomas Aquinas did most of the time. Speculative theology is a theology that advances the field of theology by trying to bring in new insights into the text. And... Um, and then there is essentially the um, recitation of what we know, what the church has taught about a particular subject. Now, in the case of most of the writings that you've seen so far, the church has not had pronouncements that said, this is how you interpret this, this passage. Right? There are few, and I've given them to you mostly in Genesis. So I told you in Genesis, you're required to believe that Adam and Eve existed. You're required to believe that Eve came out of Adam. You're required to believe that God had intervened in a supernatural manner to create Adam and Eve. You're not required to believe that he made them straight out of the dust. He could have taken two Cromanians and turned them into Adam and Eve. That is, that is permitted by the church. You're not required to believe in this literal seven days. The church doesn't require that either. You're required to believe that God created everything from nothing. So those are the sort of things that I addressed. But beyond that, there isn't any teaching of the church that says you will believe this. I mean, you will... Um, Understand it this way or that. So I told you in the, book, in the, 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 the uh, burning bush, it was Jesus, the second person in the Trinity who spoke. Well, that's not um, an official church position on the, on the subject. So you, you're free to think otherwise. However, I gave you reasons why. You know, the, the Gospel of St. John. And there are fathers who thought this way. So I'm not just making this up. Quite a few times I'll quote a father. I'll tell you St. Thomas said that. St. Augustine said that. Uh, as, as the case may be. I didn't want to, I'm, I'm not trying to make a scholarly study here, where if I'm, I'm going to sit down and quote every reference, I'll never be able to even prepare the study. Okay? So that's fundamentally, so the, 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 um, the, the, the gist of it. Yes. Okay. Very good. So this is the Catholic position, okay, on, on that particular topic. It is the same as when you think about, okay, you want to invest money in a company, right? Um, so let's take the case of investing in a company because it's a little easier directly. Are you allowed to invest in any company you want? The answer is no. You are. You're not. You're not allowed to invest in a company that is materially uh, promoting a sin. Okay? However, you decide to invest in company X who happens to produce something that company Y uses, which is then used by company Z to do something that is immoral. Are you responsible? The answer is no. Yes, because, it is, if it is not in your, because you cannot control the market, the movement of the market. It is too big for you to control. So you switch over to this other company, and then suddenly some other company that you didn't know about is now using their product. Can you track all the interdependencies of all these companies across the entire spectrum and change accordingly as they change. It's, a, it's an undue burden that goes beyond your immediate responsibility. 
Right? You're responsible for what you control around you. That's the gist of it. So therefore, in the time of Jesus, the Jews were collecting taxes, and the Romans, who were going to crucify God, were collecting taxes. And Jesus instructed Peter to go and get a fish, and in it he'll find a coin, and he'll pay the taxes for him and for Peter. He paid the taxes. Yes. Because in the end, it is God who's in control. And he knows how all that is playing out. But you can still speak out. Oh, you, you must. You must speak out. To the extent that you can, and to the degree that you can impact. You have an impact. Speaking out without impact, no, no point. Right? Yeah. Yes. For instance, if you can, absolutely, do boycott, boy, boycott them. Sometimes you just can't. Some, sometimes it's, it's too big. And God is not um, um, expecting us necessarily to do that. Because at the end of the day, we don't convert people by, boy, by boycott. No one is converted because we've boycotted something. right? And God is in the business of converting souls. So how, think of it this way. Suppose Walmart does something terrible, or Xmart, or Zmart, or whatever, some company, right? But then you go there, and because of your interaction with the cashier, and she sees you with your rosary, or what have you, suddenly she's interested by, to learn more, and then you have a soul who is now on the path. So when you, remember, when you boycott a company, you're boycotting people in that company, right? Jesus didn't boycott the Romans. They're the ones who were going to crucify him. He didn't boycott them. So we have to be careful with that business of boycotting. Who are we boycotting at the end of the day? Right? So that, that, that's why I am not, I don't usually advocate boycotting anything like that. I would rather advocate, if, if there was ways for me to change something, I would definitely do it. If, if it's in my ability to pass a legislation that will stop some behavior, I would definitely do it. The boycotting piece has not proved to be as a as effective as we think or we might think it is. So, yeah. I mean, Starbucks is a perfect example. This is a company that ha- promotes very immoral behavior. But if you go to Starbucks and you get to talk to people there who are working there, you might still reach them. Otherwise, what does that mean? So it's, it's not a cut-and-dry situation. Yeah. Yes. Very good question. I... All right, there's no... Obviously, the Catholic Church has not doesn't have a teaching on that particular topic, but I'd say this. Um, it's a family, right? We're a family. And so in a family, there may be people who like you whom you don't know. They just like you. And they're in heaven. Is God going to prevent them from interceding for you or coming to your aid? Absolutely not, Right? I'll give you one case, which is very interesting, uh, told to me by a parishioner here, who went to Mexico for, a, for the, um, uh, the, the, um, the burial of a bishop. bishop died and there was a mass. And while there, in that monastery, which I think is connected to the Maronite Church, he saw a Mexican priest in that monastery. And that was a Mexican priest from Mexico who had nothing to do with the Lebanon or the Maronites or anything. And he was there taking care of the monastery. So he talked to him. He said, well, why are you here? What brought you here? And he said, I had a nephew who was kidnapped. And I prayed to Our Lady for his release. 
And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and nothing happened. So then I prayed to Our Lady and I said, if you're not going to release my nephew, please send me a saint who will do that. And he said two days later, a group of people were clearing the sacristy, cleaning it up. And a woman came to him and said, Father, we finished. There's this one statue left. It is yours. And she gave him a statue of a saint whom he didn't know. And he said, that's my saint. So put that statue in front of him, and he prayed to that saint for two days, and then his nephew showed up. So in his view, that was the saint to whom he was supposed to pray. Now, in our hearts, God does that. You have a predilection to a saint. There's something in, in that saint that talks to you, because there is a connection. That's great. That's to be celebrated. Right? So it isn't something that... Um, would cause concern. It is something to, to rejoice over because for specific cases, specific saints are the ones you have to go to. Just as if you had a big family, lots of sisters, for certain things you go to one sister and for other things you go to the other. Because right? God loves variety. So yeah, I, I personally, this is my own personal experience and opinion, I'm absolutely convinced of this. I know that in my life, there are sp- very specific things that I get from s- specific saints. So all the spirituality, all, all the spirituality is Carmelite. So I'm very drawn to the Carmelite order. I'm a Maronite. I'm very drawn to the Carmelite order. I love the Carmelite order. And most of the teaching, most of the things I learn and I discover of the faith, the Jesuits. The Jesuits. Uh, it's... it's, it's I, I recently I was on the web and I was browsing. You know how sometimes you start jumping from one thing to the other? Oh, that's kind of interesting. And you just jump over here. And then as I was just doing this, I landed on this page I've never seen before where they were talking about this book. And I went, whoa, I want that book. Just by the description of it. And it was Father Hardin also, Jesuit, as it happens, who was recommending it. And it's, it's written by a priest, American priest, Father Kay. No one has ever heard of him who's a Jesuit. And this is incredible. It's just an amazing book on the Trinity. I mean, it's just incredible. I'm praying for the canonization of this priest. Because this is amazing. Jesuit. Don't ask me. This is how it works. So I think there is something like that that happens for specific cases. Oh yeah, and when I'm late, Padre Pio. If I'm going to the train station to catch my train and I'm late, Padre Pio, hold that train for me, please. No one else, just Padre Pio. So that's my experience. Yeah, I definitely have different saints I go to for different things. Yes. Because, so the question is, it's a difficult question. The question is, apart from me, you can do nothing. And then there's these past sins that we've committed that can harden our hearts. Well, if apart from me, you can do nothing, and we've hardened our hearts, why can't God interfere then to soften our hearts? Okay. Have I summarized your question? He does. He definitely does. So in the case of Pharaoh, you notice that for the plagues, one through six, Scripture says, Pharaoh hardened his hearts. All the plagues were given for Pharaoh to soften his hearts. All the plagues were given for Pharaoh to soften his hearts because he would recognize he is not God. He's not that strong. God is stronger and then he would have knelt before God and worshipped him and he would have gained salvation. You're with me? He hardened his heart. No, no, no. The first, yeah, he hardened his hearts. Yeah. 
But the plagues that God gave him were for the softening of his hearts. No. God sent the plagues to help Pharaoh soften his heart. Yes. Every plague was bringing the truth to Pharaoh that he's not God. The truth is supposed to set him free. He would have recognized logically, okay, all right, he's stronger than me, therefore, I am not God. Whoops, I made a mistake. Sorry, God, I made a mistake. He chose to harden his heart six times over. Absolutely. The last three times that the plagues hit, God was hardening his heart. Now it was for punishment. Okay? So, it is not true that God will leave any man outside the realm of his mercy. It is not true that God will not, doesn't desire or wish to soften every man's heart. This is um, um, dogma. Christ died for all. No one was left outside the uh, mercy of Jesus Christ. No one. Yes. Yes. That's it. Because even though God is merciful, it does not mean that God is going to extend acts of mercy indefinitely. Which is justice. Just justice. So therefore, once it's exhausted, once the acts of mercy that God has reserved for someone has been, have been ex- exhausted, God leave that person. And now he's hardening his heart. Okay? You know, it's interesting you say that. Father Amorth pointed out that in, on two occasions, he was an exorcist, he's an exorcist. On two occasions, he was exorcising a man. And the man, the man, and two, two men, they knew and admitted that they were possessed. And they didn't want to be free. So, again, free will. Yes. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, hold on, hold on. We're talking about God here, not us. Okay, so hold on. Be very, very clear. You and I can't know. You and I cannot presume to know where is one in this grand scheme of things. Because God was very specific. He told Peter... You, the church, the head of the church, you're not to judge who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. At the end, my angels will come and will separate the wheat from the chaff. Not men, angels will do that. So therefore, the church is entrusted with the mercy of Jesus Christ. We pray, we hope, always. It's not my business to determine who ends where. God has never told me or any other human being, you can do that. My business is to pray for all and hope for the best. What does the heart is with God mean? No, no. What does the heart with God mean? What do you mean by someone having his heart with God? What does that mean? But then you're talking about somebody who recognizes that he's a sinner and who comes back and asks for forgiveness. Yes, obviously. This is all of us. (laughs) All of us are in that boat because we go to confession regularly, right? What we're talking about here is someone who is not doing any of this. He doesn't even go to Mass, doesn't even go to confession, doesn't care about God, doesn't even think about religion, doesn't care about any of that stuff. You can't put the the two in the same boat, you understand? There's a difference. We can't say always. There is no assurance of salvation. We have to pray always. Right? 
God wishes to give us final perseverance, but He will not give us final perseverance unless we ask for it daily. Yeah? So God wishes to give us final perseverance. Final perseverance will lead us to heaven. But He will not give us final perseverance unless we ask for it daily. And how do we ask for final perseverance daily? Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Yes. Yes. It's a paradox. But the truth of it is that um, God wants to save all. That's His intent. Right? This is Catholic teaching. I'll repeat it again. Christ died for all. Even though it says for many, but it really means for all. So the salvation is open to everyone. And another Catholic teaching is that God gives every man all the graces required to attain unto salvation. God does not deprive anybody. You're with me? Okay. So that shows you how God acts. We imitate God. We act like Him. We are not doing it because we are result-oriented. We're doing it because we are love-oriented. And love knows no bounds. Put it the way Saint, uh, Saint uh, Blessed, she's not yet a saint, she'll soon be. Blessed Mother Teresa of Calcutta said it. God does not expect you to be successful. God expects you to be faithful. And the difference, therefore, is that you're not praying, you're not measuring the fruit of your prayer by the productivity. You're measuring your fruit of prayer by the increase of love that you have for God. You should not worry. Why not? Because in the end of the day, it is not your call. When you worry, you're you're saying to God, I don't trust you enough to love them. I can do a better job. Bingo. You You want God to do what you want Him to do. You want to be in control. No, no, no. Leave it up to God. Let it go. You have to learn to let go. Your job is simply to say, I love you. Now, you do the rest. But don't worry about it. Mary, they have no wine. Woman, what is it to you and me? My hour has not yet come. She didn't tell him, well, son, how come you don't help him? She turned to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then she retreated. She was out of the picture. That's a completely trusting relationship. You have to accept that you may pray for people and God may send them to hell. And that should not perturb your happiness. As long as we, not just you, everybody of us, hold on to our pride, it will always be hard to swallow. Because it's our pride that gets into the way. We want our way. Not his way. You understand? I don't need to understand his way. I don't need to understand his way. It is sufficient for me that it is his way. Even if all my children go to hell, and even if my wife goes to hell, it is sufficient for me that it is his way because I love him more than I love anybody else. That's what he's asking of us. And if you can't reach that level, you don't love him. You love you through Him. You understand? Look, 
As long as the focus is on others, we've got it all wrong. Because tr- the truth of the matter is, none of us is lovable. Why? Because He loves Jesus. The whole point is about Jesus. You want people to go to heaven for Jesus. Because you love Him. Not for them. For Him. But if He doesn't want to, you have to accept it. That's the key. You don't want to. No, there's no enigma. God is merciful, but He's just. Repeat after me. God is merciful, but He's just. Yes, please don't forget that. He's just. And you have to learn to love His justice. You must love His justice. Because it is beautiful. What will make you happy in heaven is His justice. When you go to heaven, everybody does for you. Let's be realistic here. We get to heaven. God willing. God willing, we're in heaven. Good. I may be the last guy that makes it in heaven, but I'd be really happy if I'm even the last one. I'd be really, really happy. I'm in heaven. Okay, 100 years go by. Don't you think I'm going to notice that some of my own descendants are not there? Maybe my children, maybe my grandchildren, they're in hell. Okay, how is it supposed to make me feel? Now explain that to me. Riddle that. It doesn't mean that I'm going to get my way every single time. It does it now. Right? Because there's, it's a complicated situation. There are free will. There are much, many things involved in this thing. My question to you, and I, there's something really subtle in what you said that's very interesting, but I'll come back to it in a minute. My, my point to you is, how can you be happy? How can you be happy if your children are in hell? You tell me that. Because you're going to see His justice, and His justice will make you happy. You can't be happy without God's justice, so don't ignore it. Right now. Yeah? Okay, you have to love everyone for Jesus. Just for Him. And for no other reason but Him. You love all in Jesus, not apart from Him. You don't manipulate Jesus to get to what you want. That is selfish love. However noble it is, however noble the intent is, I want all these people in heaven. Why do I want all these people to heaven? If, if, if in heaven God is my, is my happiness, why do I want all these other people in heaven? Why do I have that need that if they're not in heaven, I'm not happy? Because I'm loving myself. I'm my own God. That's why. Absolutely not. Because only God is lovable. That's the truth. And others become lovable because of the glory of God in them. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, apart from me, there is no love in you. Same thing. So no, it's not selfish. It is the truth. The selfish thing is to think that we can love someone else apart from Jesus. That's the selfish piece. Correct. Make yourself a saint. Focus on Jesus. Stop focusing on them. As long as you focus on others, you're missing the point. For Jesus. You pray for others. For Him. Because of the sufferings he endured on the cross. Because you don't want any drop of blood to go without fruit. That's why. But it's fo- your focus is him, not the others. Then you start to love others the, ro- the real way. Because you're completely detached from them. And they'll sense it. They know you want nothing of them. Your happiness is not dependent on them. Your love becomes truly free and therefore fruitful. Paradoxically, you're able to truly love. Do you understand? That's, by the way, a problem that, that, that affects women more than it affects men. Men have the other, other problem. 
you know, love to begin with. Women have the problem of loving too much. They just get attached, especially when it comes to their kids. Right? And they don't learn to love them the way Our Lady loved her son. She let him die. And as I think Bishop Sheen said, if Jesus had come down from the cross, Mary would have told him, go back up there. She loved him the real way. You understand? Some what I'm saying? Okay, that's the key. Yes, exactly. Inside. The conversation with Jesus. It's all about my relationship with Jesus. And then let him do the rest with others. I don't have to worry about the others. He will do the worrying. Exactly. All I have to do is focus on him. He will do the rest. This is simple, isn't it? I mean, if I'm trying to do the best I can to love him, he being the God he is, generous and loving and good, looks at my little effort, right? So he's the one making this big bonfire. And what am I doing? I'm bringing him a couple of grass that just went out and I cut them. That's what I'm holding in my hand. I got a couple of grass blades that I just cut. But I come to him and I'm just so happy that I'm giving to him. What do you think he's going to do? He will take these two grass blades and I'm giving them absolutely worth nothing and make them shine like the sun because of his love. Yeah, welcome to the club. We all have a problem. It's a very difficult thing for us to understand and grasp. My answer to you is, as long as you try to focus on trying to... As long as you're focusing on understanding how this works, you're not going to get anywhere. You're going to go in circles. If you set all that aside and you focus on the one thing you can do, which is to love Him, He gives you that inner peace that says, I am God and I'm way, way better than you can ever be. And so trust me to know that all things will come to good for those who love God. That should be sufficient to you. That's it. Yes. And remember, trusting in God doesn't mean I'm not advocating here passivism. Okay, I trust in God, the boat is sinking. and We're on the same page, okay. It's actually the opposite. Because all my trust and my happiness, in, in my, the center of my life is not in this world, I am free to act in this world. But if there's something I want from this world, I am bound to it. My action will be limited. This is how the saints work. This is what we should be all striving to. This is what I want to do. I'm not doing it. Right? I get attached to a chewing gum, for goodness sake. So my point is, we have to keep our very clear focus. It's God that matters in my life. He is the beloved. He is the one I'm after. And through Him, and because of Him, I love all. And all I care for them is to see Him the way He is. I want them to go to Him, not to me. There's nothing in me. I want them to go to Him. Because He's all in all. So that's how the saints work. Yeah, this is how they, their, their love is so powerful. But it's completely detached. If, if, if somebody says no, they completely respect that and they're peaceful at it. They're peaceful. Because their joy and happiness is never in the other directly. Which would be foolish because nobody can satisfy anybody else on this earth. Only God can. It is in God. So work on that detachment. It's called holy indifference in Catholic theology. Holy indifference. It isn't indifferent as in... Okay, you take your pain and your sorrow and all of this in prayer to God and say, Reveal to me why I am so sad. Reveal to me the source of my sadness and help me work it through. Right? And He will do that. He will bring healing to you through these prayers, through encounters, through counseling, through different people, books you read. And eventually, He'll get you out of it. But you have to be willing to let go first. 
Because he respects your freedom. He will not do anything until you're ready to do it. But his intent is to bring you to full happiness with him. You understand? Yeah. Holy indifference is to love, God, love others the way God loves them. For God, not for you. So, essentially, this completely free gift love. That's what holy indifference is. You meet somebody, you talk to him about God. If he's going to listen, he listens. And you rejoice. If he doesn't listen, your joy comes back to you. You keep on your way. Just as Jesus did with that rich man. He told, Jesus loved him. Scripture is clear. He looked in, the, in, the, in his guy and he loved him. And then he says, only one thing you need. Do this. The guy went away. What did Jesus do? Did he run after him? He tried to convince him? No. He simply said how difficult it is for those rich that are heaven. He was expressing a sorrow in that sense of, look, it's really difficult for them. But he didn't go after him or run after him or lose his peace. Why? Because his peace is in his father. Yeah? That's the key. We imitate him. Yes? Because the graces, the grace of God never goes fruitless. So, that prayer will be given to someone else. Either dead in purgatory or not dead yet. Remember the parable of talents? The three guys with the talents? God gave five to one, three to the other, and one to the third. What happened when a third produced nothing? Take his talent and give it to somebody else. That's what happened with your prayers. So the problem is we tend to be selfish. I want to pray for my mother. I want to pray for my uncle. We have our specific brothers and sisters whom we're praying for in heaven. And oh, by the way, when we get to heaven, we meet all the other brothers and sisters for whom we've never prayed. Yeah, there are going to be a lot of, I'm sorry, I should have. Yeah. So think about that. It's not like, oh, well, you know. Uh Uh-huh. So, be it as it may, you're praying. My mother passed away in, 80, in 70, 80, 89 or so, some, some years back. I pray for the repose of her soul. Now, I don't know, she may be in hell. But I'm confident that if she is, all my prayers are going to somebody else. And I leave that to God. That's it. Do you know that we know more about 70% of all the theology we know about hell comes from Jesus? Not the Old Testament, Jesus. 70% of everything we know. There is more teaching about hell in the New Testament, in the Gospels, the Gospels, than in the rest of the Bible. No, obviously it's not. You must love God in truth and in holiness. So God gives us His truth. He came and He said, this is my church. He has one church, one bride. God doesn't have four wives. He has one. All right? You want to be in heaven? It's a family. There's, there's God and there's mom. Now you go spit in the face of your mother and you think you, your father is going to be happy? Good luck with that. Okay. Not Hold on. No, no, no. Back up. No. Gonna... Back up. You, there is something fundamental you're missing here. I said heaven is a family. You have to be incorporated in the family. You have to be adopted in the family. You understand? Before all else, how do you get adopted in the family? Baptism. Without baptism, there's no salvation. That's point number one. Let's start right there. Now that you're adopted in the family, what do you do? You must live according to the rules of the family. If you don't, 
Jesus said, you'll be kicked out. Where there is gnashing and... and uh, right? Okay, he said that many times. You understand? It's a family. It's not about God being just. or It's about a family. If God in all justice... God can send all of us to hell and He would be just. God does not owe us heaven. He doesn't owe us heaven. It's by His mercy that we can go to heaven. So let's not talk about you know, God being... No, no, no. God is merciful. He extends His mercy to all. And He says, You can be my children. I will give you a part of the inheritance that I reserve for my son. In other words, you will be divinized. Obey my commandments. Live according to the laws of my church. And you will make it to heaven. He's very clear. Very clear. Explicit. And we say, I don't want to. God is humble. He's not going to impose himself on us. I don't want, you don't want to? That's fine. It's your choice. I will respect that choice. Make sense? That's how it works. All right? Okay. Yes. Oh, yes, obviously. You can have a Buddhist or a Muslim or someone like that go to heaven because before, a number of reasons. Number one, as I said, someone who lives according, this is Catholic teaching, someone who lives according to the dictate of his conscience, meaning follows the commandments which are inscribed in his human heart, will attain unto salvation because the commandments are fundamentally the church. So this person, someone who, is, who has who through invincible ignorance, which is really hard these days, with the Twitter and uh, all that. Anyhow, invincible ignorance does not know Christ, and yet who lives according to the dictator of his conscience, this is Dei Verbum, Second Vatican Council, will attain unto salvation, because those are effectively the embodiment of what the church is all about. So right in the moment of death, this guy says, whoa, Jesus, if I had known you were, I would, yeah, the church, oh yes. God is not going to tell him, sorry, Charlie, too late. No, he's invited. Exactly, it's similar to that. So, this is possible. Now, what are the probabilities? I don't know, but I would bet they're very, very small. But absolutely possible. Yes. Make sense? Yes. Yes, absolutely. We're all preachers. By our action, first. Fruits. Yeah, it's, it's just an indication of the level of glory. We shouldn't take those numbers to indicate specific numbers. It's levels of glory. No, 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 no. Not at all. First, the fruits in your soul. No, no. This is secondary. Primarily, when we speak of the fruits, it is what happens inside you. The fruits are the virtues. How you're growing in virtue. These are the fruits. It's a measure. Don't take the number to mean mathematical reality, quantities. It's a representation of the size. Not all saints attain to the same levels of glory in heaven. All right? Obviously, Our Lady is way higher than anybody else. St. Joseph is way higher than anybody else. Not all the saints are the level of St. Francis. Okay? So, there are levels of interior holiness. Not levels of number of people. Now, granted, every saint, no saint goes to heaven alone. Because by imitation, many are attracted by his or her life and then are, through the intercession of that saint, make it to heaven. But that's secondary to the life of holiness inside the person. Remember, dying to earthly stuff is good, but there are a lot of Buddhists who die to earthly stuff. And they do, it, they do a much better job than we do. It's to love him. 
We die today so we can love Him more. It's the love we have for Him that brings us to holiness. Yes, it's the measure of that love that is really what He's talking about. All right? And as a result of this, it goes out and touches the lives of so many. But remember, it is entirely possible for somebody to bring 100 people to heaven and this person go to hell. Because of that, or because of his own life, he be speaking, and God gives him the grace to speak and touch the lives of others, but he's not applying it in his own life. It's, it's, it's absolutely possible to do that. Oh yeah. That's why the church, before they, the church canonizes a saint, what the church is trying to assess is the inner life, the interior life of the virtues. Because those are the fruits. Oh no. Not necessarily. Oh no. You'd hope so, but not necessarily. You could, I mean, how many preachers end up in these scandals or end up in situations that are... No. At the end of the day, no matter what you do to others or for others, the fundamental principle should be where am I with my relationship with Jesus? That's what matters. That's it. And you leave the rest to Him. Okay? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.